HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Michter's Distillery. Visit michters.com to find out how their taste is everything, cost be damned, attitude is creating some of the finest whiskeys available. Hi, this is Celia Kutcher, host of Animal Instinct, and you are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good morning, you're listening to In The Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Joe Campanelli, and In The Drink comes to you live from uh, Roberta's here in Bushwick, New York, uh, Bushwick, Brooklyn. Um, We actually air live at 10 a.m. on Wednesdays, but you can listen to In The Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org or iTunes. Um, We have all of our episodes in the past archived. Um, really excited and a unique show for you today. We have a special guest, Nikki Ganong. And Nikki has written a book that, uh, that is actually released this month, a brand new book, all about the various liquor laws all across America and uh, the complexities and intricacies and unique and quirky aspects of all of these different laws. The book is called The Field Guide to Drinking in America, A Traveler's Handbook to State Liquor Laws. Uh, Nikki, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me. Um, what, what an interesting way to approach, uh, to approach drinking and also, uh, and also travel. Um, it's something that I think a lot of us maybe don't necessarily think about. What got you interested in this topic? Well, I'm from a control state, and so is my publisher, and we currently live in one. And so when I say a control state, I mean that the government controls um, aspects of selling liquor, like distribution and physical selling of liquor and um, the distribution of it. Yes. So uh, we came up with the idea um, because we both travel a lot, and I often travel to uh, as a drinking destination. Um, For example, we'll go to the GABF, the Great American Beer Festival in Denver, um, which has more pours more than you know two thousand beers out of their convention center. But when you go to the grocery store in Colorado, you can only buy 
beer that's of a very low percentage. So any of the craft beers that they pour at the festival can't be sold in a supermarket. It has to be sold at a specialty store. So that story, along with so many others that we encountered on the road, led to uh, the, the idea of the field guide. Yep. And I have to say, the field guide is, is really great. You make a, uh, a topic that seems pretty mundane. I mean, reading through, I can only imagine like reading through all of these arcane <laughs> liquor laws that were written maybe 90 years ago, a lot of them, um, actually kind of fun and vibrant and, and interesting. Um, and I think the graphics in your book are absolutely fantastic. Um, so congratulations on that. Thanks very much. The cover design, well, we're on radio, so you can't see it, but the cover design and all of the internal illustrations were done by a Portland artist and author. His name is Cole Gerst, and I think he did a great job, too. It's really, it's very catchy, and it's very um, pick-upable, I guess you could say. Uh, I, I couldn't agree more. And now, tell us a little bit about how... Uh, how long it took you to, to accomplish this, and uh, how long did the research take, and, and how did you actually go about doing the research? Were you able to find all the information online? Did you have to actually travel to, to the States? Uh, yes. Um, well, there are different parts of the book, as, as you know, uh, through reading it. There's one page that's just the brass tacks, everything that you need to know in one handy info chart. And then there's an essay by me talking about how the how the liquor laws came to be and, and what what may be that region's uh, relationship with drinking um, and places to go, that kind of thing. Um, so, uh, yeah, it took about uh, three years from the concept to printing. But um, there's, no, there's no other book out there like this. So um, it, we did a lot of talking about what would be the most appealing format and um, what would be most accessible to people. Um, yeah, and the, most of the codes are available online. Some aren't. Um, uh, some you, you they are their law, and then they contradict themselves, you know, through amendments to each uh, particular action. So yes, um, but it, it's been thoroughly vetted by both fact checker, checker and an attorney. And there was, uh, I actually, I read through the law myself, but I had a colleague go through and um, pick out the, the the more, I guess you might say, salacious aspects of um, the law. And as far as traveling to the States, uh, I've, I was asked that question recently, so I had to actually go and count. I've been to 28 of them. But um, that's just through, uh, like I said, making drinking a destination, you know, going to some place to drink beer or for a food festival or to visit distilleries or something like that. It's been an interest and um, focus of my traveling for many years now. <laughs> well, I, I can't say that I had any particular desire to go to Nevada before, but now reading in your book that they, they can serve alcohol 24 hours a day, I, I might be changing that. <laughs> yeah, well, it's Las Vegas. <laughs> you can also go to Atlantic City. That's not too far from you. Not, not too far at all. Um, <laughs> And so a lot of these laws, I mean, from my understanding, most of them or, or all of them really came from the, the end of prohibition. But do, did, in your research, did you find that did, were all of these laws kind of uh, date back to the 1930s or have they been updated over time? And is there anything that, that comes from before that time? From before that time? Um, well, in, in a sense, yes. I mean, not to get too dry, but the, you know, there, there was an underlying uh, area of temperance and 
in the northeastern part of the United States. And as the West grew, as as the country grew westward, um, there were you know sort of these frontier lands where things were particularly lawless. Um, and you know that's not necessarily good for the home. So um, the women's Christian temperance movement, among others. Um, they sort of, um, they, you know, they, women didn't have the vote. So they were an organized group of people trying to get legislation passed to make uh, things a little bit more happier at home. Um, so even though, you know, we have the Women's Christian Temperance Union to blame for a lot of, a lot of the blue eyes laws, we can thank them because they're in part, you know, organizing women and, and giving women the right to vote. So they've done a lot more than just prevent us from uh, having a beer so i'd rather i'd rather vote than have a beer (laughs) (laughs) Uh, i I would um, say so but i i I mean in terms of the actual legal the the legislation the laws were those kind of all written at the end of uh prohibition um the ones that we we know today or have they have there been some uh significant changes that have happened oh yeah yeah Um, most of the laws were enacted after prohibition there are federal laws that that um, governed uh, the entire area. First, um, before prohibition was repealed entirely, there was the small beer legislation that said that you could make these low-point beers. They, well, so what they did is they sort of um, didn't actually change the law. They sort of um, redefined it. And you'll find that in many places, like um, in Pennsylvania, where you could only buy beer by the case at a beer distributor or by the six six-pack at a restaurant. Well, they didn't change the law. They just redefined what a case was. And so, so too, um, when prohibition was repealed, um, they called these so-called small small beers, they called them non-intoxicating so that they, you know, were no longer, uh, uh, you know, um, able to be able to prohibitive from being sold. But, um, yes, baby steps. And also, um, People that uh, have a vested interest, businesses, those are the kind of people that that lobby and get things changed um, slowly but surely. Because you know, the, once the public has a system in place, um, you know, it's, it takes a lot to change that system. And who are those people who have the the public the uh, the vested interest? Is it mostly distributors? Is it mostly the public? Is it politicians? Well, for sure, uh, I, I would say distributors have. In states where distribution is is privately done, they have a huge interest. They not not to get too uh, wonky again, but they they are they are responsible for getting things on the shelf. And if you in some states like in Oregon, you, without without dis- distributors, um, you know you're forced to use a distributor. So if you want your beer on the shelf, you have to go through someone who can get it there. So it's a sort of like organized, you know. Uh, organized group of uh um of people but uh other uh, other citizens people who um you know want to brew beer people who want to distill spirits people who have that sort of entrepreneurial spirit um really uh get, you know go forward and make these sort of things happen yes but the public you know the public does vote on things uh, as a whole and to use Pennsylvania as an example again, um, there they'll probably come up with some legislation this year as to whether or not um, their 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 estate stores can be divested. And um, our neighbor to the north, Washington, the that whole uh, that whole they recently became they they did away with all of their 
state stores and the state no longer has mm. uh, any control over any of the alcohol. That, I say, I, I think was engineered by Costco. So a big business, you know, a big, um, a big um, a corporate entity made that law pass. And I think that Washingtonians are sort of regretting it now because the taxes are through the roof, and so um, a lot of them are coming into Oregon. Anyone on a border on a border is coming into Oregon to buy their alcohol, and Oregon is a control state, meaning all the prices are the same everywhere. So it's a uh, it's an interesting it's an interesting situation. All of it is really interesting. Wow, that's that's really fascinating. I mean, uh, I, I know I have friends down in uh, Philadelphia who will often go to New Jersey to buy to buy their wine and liquor because it's so New Jersey is not a control state and Pennsylvania is, and so the prices are so much better there. And I, I'd assume that it was always, you know, always in that way, but uh, I, I guess it's not. I mean, the the control states get such a huge amount of revenue from uh, right. from liquor that it seems that um, what's happened in that case is that they must have just way increased the taxes to make up for the revenue that they, that they weren't getting. Yes, and it's, un- it's unfortunate. I think, they, I think that they skewed it, especially in Washington, a little bit too um, uh, drastically. But the alcohol sales are up in liquor. I'm, I'm talking about sales are up in Washington hmm. just because they're just so much more available. You can go to the supermarket and buy it now. So convenience uh, definitely outweighs uh, um, the hardship of crossing the border for a cheaper price. So can you talk a little bit about um, your process and really finding out how alcohol and American values are interwoven? Was when these laws were created, was it a snapshot of general American values, or was it kind of what you're just talking about, that the people who are the most powerful were able, as always, to just to, to really influence it? Yes. Um, I, I think it's uh, uh, religion definitely, I mean, predominantly controls, the, especially in the southern states. You know, it's a big country with a, a diverse um, belief system, and these... Uh, these organizations that um, uh, go through and push for um, legislation or, or adamantly block anything new that comes in, um, yeah, I think it's a direct reflection of of the populace, uh, uh, or rather their acceptance of certain things. You know, um, states where you can't buy higher higher point beer readily, easily available. Um, those states, they're uh, you know, they're, 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 it's just what they're used to, so they continue to do it, and it's not really part of their culture anymore. But, but not to, not to offend religious groups, I think they're wonderful, and it's a different, different sort of community that meets at the church versus those that meet, meet at the pub. But, um, they're both important, and it, I think they do directly reflect, uh, the voting populace at, at the very least. Okay, and I imagine that's why some of these laws have been able to, to persist since uh, since prohibition so long ago, um, you know, from the 1930s to today, if you can imagine the product mix, what things that are that are different that are available here from all over the world, uh, all this technology, but we still have some of these laws that seem so arcane. Mm-hmm. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> um, did, did you come across anything that was surprising about how? alcohol legislation has shaped the beer or wine or spirits industry over time, really what people are producing? Um, For sure. Um, it's not a, a lot of, uh, 
Yeah, so our book really talks about what, how, to, how the consumer, how the law affects the consumer. But how the law affects the business is um, it's, a, it's a big part of, you know, whether those businesses even flourish or not. It's taxes and um, the startup costs of producing um, uh, alcohol. Like, you don't find very many breweries in the South or in Florida, for example. But in, in Oregon, we have more than 100. There are more than 50 in the city limits here. And I think it's because the government makes it sort of easy to start a business up. The same with distilling. You know, distilling, is, it's a... It's, it's, bit federally difficult to be an at-home distiller since it's illegal, whereas most home brewers get their start in their kitchen. Um, so, uh, yeah, the, 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 um, yeah, the law definitely, definitely impacts how um, a business even comes in, into place. And so it's what, that makes it what, what's available, you know. Uh, and I think um, in, in, you're in New York, right? Yes, I'm in, uh, in Bushwick, Brooklyn in New York right now. <laughs> Great. <laughs> New York, um, it, it's it's granted huge tax incentives to people who use local products, so um, who who make things locally, out of local ingredients, indigenous ingredients, and certain percentage of them. And New York will will um, make the taxes easier on that business, so that makes it makes it much more financially attractive to start a business versus these other sort of um, big businesses that come in and try and build. Um, in a place might have a little bit more difficulty. Yeah, and it seems that a place like New York, which has a vibrant agriculture um, ability to produce not beer and liquor, which could be made pretty much anywhere, but also wine, obviously Oregon, where you are, is is, is great for that. There, there might be some kind of advantage to that, especially, um, I remember uh, a decade ago, I was working in wine retail, and at the time, it, there, the laws were very challenging with shipping state to state. There were these very protective laws, um, right. and that was, that was liberalized. But uh, a state that produces quite a bit and has these very open laws in regards to uh, to to shipping liquor um, internally to giving tax incentives to people who are producing internally it seems like that would really favor the, those kind of states for sure you know New York uh, before prohibition New York had a, a thriving spirits and beer industry and uh, then after prohibition well during prohibition those um, that acreage was no longer used for the things that you need, the grain that you need to make beer and spirits. And so um, they sort of lost, uh, they lost hop varieties, they lost, and, and um, I just re- recently read an article, I, I'm, I'm sorry I'm blanking on where it was from, but it was talking about how all of these crops are now being grown again to satisfy the people who need to, you know, have a percentage of their product be made from a, you know, a local pro- uh, a local ingredient. So it's um, it, it it helps more than just uh, the distiller. It helps the farmer. It helps the packager, the person who makes the packaging. Mm-hmm. Um, everything. It's uh, it's it's amazing when you start a little spark in an industry that's you know considered taboo by some um, or some regions. It just births this entire range of new businesses and um, new business, old businesses coming new again, farming, for example, in New York. Fascinating. All right, we're going to take just a quick break, uh, but we're going to be back with more of Nikki Ganong and her really fascinating book on um, American uh, laws as it comes uh, as it pertains to liquor. So we'll be right back. 
You're listening to Balloons by Jack Inslee. This is In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Victor's Distillery is a proud sponsor of In the Drink and HeritageRadioNetwork.org. At Mictor's, our passion is making the finest whiskeys possible. When you only make small batch and single barrel whiskeys like Mictor's does, your whiskey has to be perfect. No detail is too small, from careful attention to the wood used in the construction of our barrels to lower barrel entry proof before heat-cycled aging in advance of exacting chill filtration. And no whiskey gets bottled until Mictor's master distiller says it's just right. Michter's Cost Be Damn Taste Is Everything Attitude is apparent in every sip of its smooth, rich whiskeys. Is it worth it? A lot of spirits lovers seem to think so. Food & Wine magazine called Michter's the best American whiskey. Bon Appetit said it's amazing. And the Wall Street Journal had one special word for Michter's. Phenomenal. For more information, visit michters.com or simply visit your favorite bartender or retailer and ask for Michter's. This is Brandon Hoy, co-owner of Roberta's, and you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org. All right, we're back with Nikki Ganong, the author of the brand new Field Guide to Drinking in America. Nikki, welcome back. Thanks very much. All right, let's get into some of the really salacious, fun stuff. What is What are some of the just absolute wackiest, strangest laws uh, that you, that you came across during your travels and studies? Well, you know, there are the laws. Um, you can't ride a horse drunk in Colorado, and please don't feed the moose deer in Alaska. There are those sort of um, books or laws that are on the books that aren't really practical. But the things that I find most interesting are the the the, le- the laws that um, govern things that affect us, that um, I- inconvenience us. Like, for example, um, California is really a very liberal state uh, to get your drink on it. You know, it's things are you know wildly widely available, and there's a great variety of uh, products in in California. But I think um, they have this uh, growler level label legislation um, that I find bananas because um, it just makes it inconvenient for people to 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 use growlers and get a growler refill there refill there um initially this and 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 up until just a year ago California required that you use a growler um to from the same brewery that you're getting the beer poured into so um can you imagine you know you'd have to have like 15 different growlers if you lived in Oregon because you'd visit all these different breweries that are in your neighborhood and you wanted to get beer to go from them You'd have to have a special growler. Well, now they've made it so that you can refill any growler, but the the label uh, has to have approval. So every single beer that you produce has to have a label that's approved by the state, and also it must cover any any other image on the on the growler itself. So glass growlers that are imprinted with a, someone else's logo have to be pasted over again and again and again. So you have these paper labels that are attached uh, to building up like, you know, like um, the 
you know, a, a, a light post, you know, wow. <laughs> with flyers, yeah. And um, the, the thing that's most interesting is that on the label, you have to include all, all this information, the alcohol content, the, the name of the beer, the brewery. But the one thing that's most important to the consumer, the date when you got this thing filled isn't required. So it's, to me, it's so, so ridiculous. Include the date if you're going to make them um, cover the label up. But, you know, it's become such a hassle that the breweries just don't do it. Yeah, and it I seems like really the date would out, be the know? one important thing. You, this way you remember how old it is, how fresh it is. And that seems right. like, yeah, that's <laughs> a <hilarious>. date. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, there are a lot of laws out there like that um, that are sort of just ridiculous, but you may not notice them if you, if you live there, if it's your way of... If it's your way of um, activity already, yeah. So I, I can tell throughout this that that you're a big fan of growlers. What are the other um, the other laws that are consistent throughout that that are the the issues that drinkers throughout the country are, are kind of thinking about? Growlers, BYO, closing times. Yeah, definitely. All that information is in our book BYOB. Whether you can bring something, um, and uh, yeah, the the closing times, that's an important thing for a consumer. Where you can buy things, where you can't buy things, whether you can take an open bottle of wine home. These are all things that um, we address on one fact page in the book. And the the other part of the book is, uh, you know, an essay about just how how things got to be that way. Um, but it's really practical, and it's it's helpful, and I think it's also interesting as well. You know, we've got all these stories about um, Prohibition days and things that have uh, survived beyond Prohibition. Um, but the brass tacks, the basic do's and don'ts and cans and can'ts, are all together on one page in the book. Yeah, and uh, now just for you personally, I know that you've been trained through the Beer Judge Certification Program. Can you tell us a little bit about what this entailed and how you first became interested in studying beer? Was it during your research for this book, or is it before? Oh, no, many years before. Hmm. I moved to Portland maybe 20 years ago, Portland, Oregon, and it has a, it's had a thriving beer scene since um, since I came here, and it's been growing over the years. So I guess I became most interested in beer just as a product of you know, the environment that I live in, the fact that I can just I walk past these breweries. And that's really just the culture here. There's a, a lot of them, and they keep keep opening up. And so um, I'm not a home brewer, but I had a, a very strong interest in, in beer and the different varieties and styles. And the BJCP, the Beer Judge Certification Program, is sort of like, you know, the Westminster Kennel Club and how things are, how the dog has to be a certain style, so to speak, like the dog has to look a certain way in order for it to be, um, you know, superior, judged superiorly. Well, that's what the BJCP is for beer. We're sort of like the um, the sticklers, the, the how things uh, adhere to a style, not what not what tastes best, not not what's well. That's part of it too, but it has to taste good. But mostly, what what style it conforms to. So I've been through those uh, classes and many other um, seminars as well about beer and about spirits as well, because spirits um, started in um, Oregon maybe ten years ago. Hmm. Things started um, booming or growing slowly, and now there's a huge boom on. In Portland, there's, I think, maybe 35 now that are in the region. That's a lot. I mean, that's a lot of people to be, um, you know, producing different spirits, and they're very creative about it, too. 
So I, I guess uh, my interest in beer and wine, and wine especially, and the spirits is all just because I live where I live. You know, it's what's what's here and what, what we're drinking is always something new. Sizer, have you heard of Sizer? It's sort of like a hybrid of mead and cider, and uh, there's cideries popping up here too. So, uh, yeah, that's, um, that's it, yeah, so that's how I got um, interested in beer and, uh, you know, uh, traveling all over the world, not not just in the United States, and although there are really great breweries all over the United States, too, but in Belgium and Germany and uh, just tasting what uh, uh, other people are making. Right. Now, it's, I mean, it sounds like Portland is just a, a super exciting place to be drinking with all those craft brewers, craft distillers, uh, being so close yeah. to the Willamette Valley and, and all the great wine that was there. What What are some drinking trends? What are people actually drinking? Are they drinking this cider mead? I mean, what, what do you cider see that people are actually drinking? Of, yeah, yeah, cider is a huge industry and it's just booming in my opinion um but beer is getting bigger and it will continue to grow Uh, right now in portland and as a matter of fact opening last night the craft beer conference brought uh 12,000 people 12,000 brewers and people in the industry to the city so um it was with much chagrin that i heard i had heard that i had to get up at seven in the morning (laughs) after uh last night's opening reception for the craft beer conference um but uh, beer is beer has uh, always been huge, and I think cider is the thing that's um, that's booming most, um, and will continue to grow. And how I mean to tie it back into your book, how, how have Oregon's particular liquor laws shaped the drinking culture um, in the food and beverage industry? I mean, I think it's especially interesting and exciting that it's one of the few states that has per, uh, that has passed legislation allowing for filling of wine growlers. I didn't even know right. that anywhere did that. Yeah, in fact, um, they were pioneers, uh, the people that put that through, um, the wine growler legislation. I think they have to come up with a better name for it, but in all of the, in all of the law, it's all written as growler. It shouldn't be a growler. It should be something more elegant, you know, for, uh, the wine industry, I think, than a growler. Um, but, uh, the, so the legislation, I, there, in a food cart pod, there is, they can serve beer. Um, that's that's to me is ridiculous. You're outside. It's crazy that you can this this gathering of food carts can also have a beer truck. It's uh, I mean that's that's really surprising that they allow that. And of course the filling of growlers, um, tasting rooms that every brewery can operate a tasting room. Great. Spirits can operate a tasting room. There there are places in the United States where that that can't. That's not the case. That the 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 beer the brewery and the place that serves or even samples that have to be two different locations. So the, the whole brew pub industry is, is um, you know, not a factor in that state, those states. But in Oregon, it's huge. Um, the tasting rooms, even if you uh, don't have, uh, you know, the, the license to serve um, uh, full pours, you can still taste them at many of these places. Uh, and they also give up a retail license for many of them. Um, whereas in other states they they don't, and it's uh, you know a distillery distilleries especially that they can just open is um, without. I'm not saying that the paperwork is is you know non-existent. There is there are things loops that you have to jump through, but um, yeah, why it's how it's available here is is uh, um, why I talk about it so much in the book. Yeah, and. You know, I'd love to finish on what you see for the future of liquor laws across the country. Uh, do you really anticipate that there'll be any near-term reforms of some really antiquated laws like the blue laws and et cetera? I don't know. I mean, 
it's hard to say what's going on in the country politically. Um, I would like to hope that things get easier or things get more, you know, consumer friendly. But I, I don't really know. I, I, I would hope I would hope it does get better. But um, I would, you know, I would hope there would be no need for a book. I, I hope we could all just read travel books about <laughs> um, what to drink where we're, when we're some someplace, not how. Uh, so I, I really can't say whether or not it's going to get better or not. It, you know, who knows what's going to happen in the next election. <laughs> well, I, unfortunately, there, there still is a need for, uh, for your book to help us decipher the confusing maze that, that are liquor laws across America. And uh, thank you for, for creating something that has made that, uh, while still very confusing, a little bit less so. Well, thanks very much for having me, and thanks for your interest in the field guide to drinking in America. Uh, I, I think you, you really did a fantastic job. It's a, it's an entertaining book. There's some great tidbits, great stories along, along with presenting this, uh, this information, which can seem like uh, maybe it isn't the most juicy and exciting information. It, it is when it's presented the way that you do. So, so congratulations. Oh, thank you very much. Thank, thanks so praise. much. Um, also, before we go, I do want to mention that um, if anyone is around uh, New York City this Saturday, um, we're going to be doing a beverage class over at Anfora um, on aperitivi culture in Italy. So we'll have uh, Aperol spritzes and Negronis and Chinar sodas and, and the like. Uh, we'd love to have you there. It's uh, two to th- uh, I'm sorry, three thirty to five p.m. You can find. Uh, ticket information on our website, www.am4.com, um, and I hope to see you there. All right. Thank you again, uh, Nikki Ganong, uh, author of The Field Guide, to, Field Guide to Drinking in America. Fantastic book. And thanks to all of you for listening. This has been In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.